Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast, backed by popular demand and uh, uproarious crowds standing outside the podcast studio demanding that we have him back. We've got Lance Ward with us. That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) But Lance, welcome back. I really wanted to spend a little bit more time talking to you because I think, you know, last time we covered your story, we talked about what you're doing now in pastoral care, walking with people in seasons of suffering. And and uh, one of the questions I've always had, and I've talked to a lot of people who feel this way too, is that one of the most awkward parts of, of ministry and life in general is what do you do when something bad happens to someone else? And so in those moments, you want more than anything to be there for that person. Right, so yeah. whether it's a friend or a family member or you, you know you hear something bad happen and you're just sitting there paralyzed thinking about what to text mm-hmm. or you know you get in the car and you go over there and you walk into a room where everybody's crying and it that is so awkward. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and you feel bad about feeling awkward because on the one hand it's not about you. <laughs> it's about yeah. them yeah. and you want to be there for them, but then you don't know what to say. And you're like, do I avoid the topic? Do I not avoid the topic? I mean, and I've learned so much from you about how to walk into those situations and really be uh, the hands and feet of Christ to be comforting to those people. And I wanted you to just spend some time talking about what have you learned? What advice would you give from your time in pastoral care to everyday people when something bad happens to somebody that they love and somebody that they're close to. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And that's, you know, and I think Michael, Kristen, Michelle, the people that work that serve with me and we we all go and see different people in different situations whether it's hospital visit or a, uh, the death of a family member and you're going into that house mm-hmm. or anything like that. You know, I think all of us would agree that as much as we've done that it's, it seems like almost every time that I'm walking into a situation I think might be pretty big, like the death of a family member, <clears> the <throat> sudden death, a, maybe a suicide or, or a hospital room where somebody's just been told, you know, you've only got so many weeks to live. I, I often will say a prayer driving up or maybe walking down the hall into that place or walking into that front door. And I'll say something to the effect of, Lord, I have no idea what I'm walking into it's always a little different. It's never a cookie cutter deal with suffering. And so I'll say, Lord, I, I really don't have any idea what I'm walking into. Fill me with your spirit. Mm-hmm. May Help me to manifest the presence of your spirit and help me to be wise as to what do I say? What do I not say? Do I not say anything or, or do I say little? And you know, one of the things I learned too, almost, uh, almost by accident, especially in hospice chaplaincy, was to be comfortable with silence. And and you know how I learned that is there's a lot of times where you don't know what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. So somebody says something and then they just kind of sit there and maybe they're waiting on you to say something. You don't know what to say. And so you just sit there, you know, and, and hopefully you don't have a look on your face like I have no idea what to say here. But a lot of the times they'll just fill that in for you. Mm. And, and then by the end of that time, or maybe a few weeks later, they'll say, you know, I so appreciate your counsel, or I so appreciate you talking with me. (laughs) And you're just, you know, you think in the back of your mind, sometimes I had no idea what I was going to say. I had Mm -hmm. no idea what I was going to do, but that just, you know, and that's, that's taught me something that I had already been taught before, but it was by experience. And that sometimes, 
you just don't need to say much at all. Hmm. You just need to be with them. Uh, you know, and in some situations too, hospital room, for example, uh, this is on a little bit of a different note, but when we go into a hospital room, unless that person asks us to sit down, you know, we try to convey to them, we're here to pray with you, let you know we love you, and we're not going to stay very long because really they need to rest. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are scared to death to go on hospital visits because they think, I'm going to have to stay there for half a day or for even half an hour. You know what? You probably don't even need to be there 10 minutes yeah. because they really need to rest. They're going to have staff coming in back and forth. Yeah. Uh, when it's a family grieving, you know, a lot, sometimes you don't really know many of the family members. You may not have even known the person that passed away. So you might walk into that situation and be there for 10 minutes because your feel is they really need to be just with each other now. And uh-huh. I'm, I'm kind of an outsider or you may be there for two hours. Right. Um, I don't know how that, you know, if that's fully answering that, but a well, lot I think of there's times, a big pressure to speak. You know, I, when you think about you've heard, whether it's at a funeral or somebody that, you know, has said, Oh, well, when I was going through this time, you know, so-and-so was there and they just said something I'll never forget. They said, yeah. and then, you know, whatever. And you feel the pressure in that moment to hit that home run ball. Like, oh, I I need to say something they're going to remember, you know, something they can cling to. Or there's the pressure of saying something that makes it better. Yeah. And in those situations, you know, neither of those are really a realistic expectation. Number one, you don't have to talk, like you're saying. Uh, Because a lot of times, you know, they're not really listening that much to what you're saying anyway. They're grieving. You know, they need to be the people that are talking, which I'd I'd love to talk about in a minute. But then secondly... um, you know, the, the, the pressure that you feel to hit that home run ball and make things better, you're not. You're not going yeah. to. And uh, that's not an excuse to not put forth any effort. Yeah. But uh, it, it, is, yeah. It, it is a good reminder to say, you know what, it's not, what you say right here isn't going to be the thing that carries them through this. The Lord is going to be the thing that carries them through this. And the yeah. more you can point them to Him, the better. Yeah. Um, but but I feel like people do people really do feel that pressure to say something, yeah. Instead of just to be present, that's a yeah. And and there, and you do have to actively listen. I mean, it's mm-hmm. good to make eye contact. It is good to really tune in because you might have something to say. But a lot of times, it's not so much you have something to say. It's your body language, a nod, uh, a look on your you know a, 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 an empathetic look that says I'm hurting with you, and this is hard. And, and a lot of times it's just that. And um, But again, I think the main thing to do is just pray before you go in and say, you know, think about Jesus at Lazarus's, in the Lazarus situation. He talks to Mary and Martha very differently. Martha is the theologian of the passage, mm-hmm. almost in a sense. And so he talks <laughs> theology with her. Right. And, and she's okay with that. That's kind of Martha, as we know from other passages, is big on here's the task to do. Here's the thing to think about. So Jesus... And then he goes to Mary, and what does he mainly do? He just weeps. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't say much to Mary. It's almost, and we don't know what else he does with body language and everything, but maybe he embraces her. Maybe, you know, what we don't know, but but that's kind of the wisdom you ask for, too, is 
not so much just Mary and Martha, but am I walking into a Martha situation or am I walking into a Mary situation? Mm -hmm. And some people will ask you theological questions, and most of the time they really don't want an answer there. They want a a long theological treatise on why bad things happen. Yeah, they they might say, how could could God let this happen, Lance? And you know what? A lot of the times the answer is, I don't know. Job Mm -hmm. didn't know, so how should I know? I don't say all that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's real good. (laughs) Come on, lady. You know, uh, but... You know, I feel comfortable on that, too, that Job didn't know why Mm -hmm. the Lord. And he was walking with God in a greater way than anyone else who had walked the face of the earth at that time. Right. And I don't know is, and sometimes there's an idea that I might convey of, I don't know the answer to your question, but let me remind you of what I do know when it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I know in hospice chaplaincy, one of the things that I learned, again, just through trial and error was... If I need to say anything to this person, let me just say it in the prayer. Let me just acknowledge something that's true when I pray with them. Mm-hmm. And um, that way they don't feel like I'm trying to convince them or lecture them or set them straight. But what I am doing is I'm conveying biblical truth in that prayer, which I think is... is And I don't know, they may not even be hearing that, but you know, right. I, I just, you know, Lord, we know that you are a gracious God. Yeah. And that you are good, and and we trust that now, even though it just seems like it ain't true. Yeah, you know, and and just to pray like that, and again, like we talked about in the previous thing, to groan, but to hope, mm-hmm. but not to do so in a preachy way. Or, right. Okay, let me set you straight. I think mm-hmm. your I think your view of the Trinity is not quite right here. So let's <laughs> talk about this now while the moment is right. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think a lot of the problems come in with. Um, <clears throat> You know, when you do speak, what do you say? And, and a lot of times we want to avoid talking about suffering. Mm-hmm. And I think on the front end, that's a problem because a, a quote that I always keep in mind, C.J. Mahaney, I think, I think when we were at T4G, either last time or the, or the time before that, he says, people need their best theology in their worst moments. Mm. And the problem is, in their mm. worst moments is not the time to fix their theology. Right. The time to mm. give them their best theology is when they're not suffering. Yeah. You know, so if you preach through the Bible, if you preach through books of the Bible, you're going to have to talk about suffering mm-hmm. and you're going to have to do it in ways that, that reach people who are not suffering. Yeah. It's like, man, what a downer on a Sunday morning or a yeah. Wednesday night to talk about suffering. But it's like, if you don't, then in those moments where people need that suffering theology, you're not going to be in the position to give it to them. Yeah. You know, unless you prepare them to suffer, you know, they used to say in one of the Puritan, uh, manuals, you say that the pastor's role is to prepare people for a good death. Hmm. And I think a a lot of times it's the pastor's role is to prepare people. Teaching the Bible prepares you to suffer, not in a way that's glamorous to other people, but to suffer in a way that you do cling to the Lord in those moments. And uh, if you don't teach on suffering, you never have that opportunity. Um, But then when you get in the moment you know, when you do say things, if you're not fixing their theology, what do you talk about? Well, this is something I learned from you. It's, it's not actually a bad thing to let them talk about what happened. Yeah. It can be, we play this game kind of in our minds, like, well, you know, the last thing I'd want to talk about in a hospital room is a person being sick. You know, yeah. like, let's talk about OU football or something. And that well, may that, be what they want to talk about. Well, that's what I want to talk about either way. But, <laughs> but you know, it's like, well, how, how about the weather? You know, and it, but it's like a lot of times they're going to want to talk about what happened. And, what, you know, this is especially true when somebody has 
been with a loved one who died, mm. often there will be somebody that was in that situation that recounts what the, their last moments were like. And what so often happens in that case is they continue to repeat that story. Mm. And I've learned, don't say, oh, you've already told me that. Just They're just trying to process stuff. Yeah. And they're just trying to get some stuff. They don't even know. I mean, I don't know what I would be like if I lost someone very, very close to me. I don't know, but they just need to talk. And you, you just, you just let them do that and don't correct, don't even correct that. Don't even correct them and say, you know, you've already told me that story three times Mm -hmm. or you've already told us, you just kind of let them say what they need to say. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think one of the most valuable things I've seen you do is when, well, a, a couple of things when we've gone on visits together, the first thing is when we first pulled up at our first hospital, when I was an intern, I think at the church, I saw you take off your watch in the car. Oh yeah. And uh, put it in the glove box. So I took off my watch, <laughs> put it in the glove box. It's, but then it's still there. I remember yeah. you telling me, um, you know, you don't want to wear a watch in there because if you accidentally look at it, it makes people feel like you don't want to be there. You know, what's funny that happened today. Speaking of that now, it's not so much take off your watch, but put your phone on do not disturb. Yeah. And I th- just today I was visiting someone in the hospital and I have one of those watches where when I get a text or a phone call, my watch vibrates. Uh huh. And, you know, right now it's considered rude to look at your phone when somebody's talking to you. So <laughs> I forgot to put my phone on Do Not Disturb. Yeah. And I looked at my watch to see what it was. And right then the person said, oh, I know you've got a lot to do. And I was like, gosh, oh. that is the worst. You know, but we had a yeah. seminary professor, Doug Cecil, that told us that. This was back in seminary in the 90s. He says the first thing to do before you go into a hospital room or death situation is take off your watch. Mm-hmm. You don't want to see them. You don't want them to see you looking at your watch or in these mm-hmm. days looking at your phone. Right. And I'm telling you, if I'm in a place where I've forgotten to silence my phone and I get that vibe, I lose, I lose track. Mm-hmm. Because now I'm thinking, who could that be? Is everything okay? Who right. needs me? Is that one of my kids? Do they need me? Does Jenny need me? And I just throw it on do not. The thing about do, I have an iPhone. The thing about do not disturb is if someone really needs you, they have to call you at least twice. Yeah. And so then you know. And that actually happened to me once when I was in the hospital and my daughter needed to call me and tell me something. Fortunately, it wasn't huge, but she needed to know an answer right then. Well, I happened to be walking down the hall. Uh-huh. But yeah, you, you want to... You never, and I don't, I wish I did this better. Sometimes I kick myself because I don't think I do this well enough sometimes, but I never want to give them the indication that I'm in a hurry. Here's what they say all the time too. It's like, Hey, I know you're busy. And I want to say, yeah, but this is what I'm busy about. This is is my, I know you need to get back to your job. This is my job. Right. I get paid to be interrupted. This is my (laughs) job. This is, you know, it's like the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus stops the procession to an urgent matter. And they're like, you can't do that. No, this is. This is what the father's called me to do. Mm-hmm. So try to put people at ease and say, no, I'm not, I'm not in a rush here. Yeah. And I'm doing exactly what I'm called yeah. to do. So if you had to give some, some phrases, some do's and don'ts, you know, just talking to not a pastor, just everyday ordinary person who may find themselves in a situation where something bad has happened family member, or you're just walking alongside somebody that's having a really hard time and you're worried about them, um, give us kind of your top, say this, don't say this, do this, don't do this. Boy, that's, you know, at the death of someone, uh, people mean well, um, but it's very common for people to give someone their own version of why they think God allowed this. So, Mm. you know, God just needed another angel, um, 
it was for the best. Yeah. They're in a better place, <clears throat> which I always tell people, I don't want to go to a better place. That's six flags. I want to go to the best place. <laughs> That's you know? right. Please don't ever, t- if I die, don't tell my wife I'm in a better place because she'll shriek in horror because she knows what I think about that issue. But there's no reason at all that I can think of to tell someone who's lost a loved one why you think God allowed this or did yeah. this. It's not productive. Be, and for the simple fact that we probably don't know, that's mm-hmm. Job. We don't know. So why do we feel, and most people are good about that, or or even with someone in the hospital or sick, hey, if there's anything I can do, let me know. Don't say that. Just find something to that's do. That's probably the most common and do it. one. Yeah, because yeah. I've never known in world history, and all the records recorded, <laughs> that anyone who's ever told this has actually said, hey, you know what? There is something you can do. Uh-huh. It just uh, so... But don't feel obligated to do that. But if you think of something you can do, great. You know, do it. Make sure you're not imposing. Like if you say, I want to bring over a meal, I would let them know a day ahead of time, hey, I want to bring you over a meal tomorrow night. And you don't have to do anything but be at the door. Uh, That's a good thing to do, but let them know. Mm -hmm. Um, And if it's me, make sure there's no vegetables in it. But but yeah, that's kind of on the death area. Um, there's no obligation. I, you know, if somebody's really hurting, if I walk into a situation where someone's lost a child, I might say to them, this is just awful mm-hmm. or this is awful, isn't it? You know, and, and I don't even necessarily say that, but you know, you just acknowledge what they acknowledge to be true. If mm-hmm. that makes sense, this is terrible. This feels awful. I don't know which way is up. Um, I don't know that I would say all those things, but if you do communicate anything, just communicate what is the reality right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same is in the hospital. You know, um, one of the things that I want to be real careful about and hopefully haven't done it too much, but is if you're in the hospital visiting with somebody, let's say they're about to have open heart surgery. You know, you never want to talk about an instance where you knew an open heart surgery went wrong. But you yeah. just we just have a tendency if we're not it's, careful to do it. It. <laughs> it is like yeah. it's it's like moths to to the flame. It, it, <laughs> no, and, and the worst is like uh, you know, if you've had that experience, be like, Yeah, well when I had my but I'm sure that won't happen to you, but <laughs> when I had mine it was horrible. Yeah. It's like a wisdom teeth stories as Brian yes. Regan talks <laughs> yeah. about. You know, we always want to one up people. I had all four out. They were impacted. You know, they right. had to get a jackhammer on my mouth. You know, you don't yeah. need to talk about all that. But it's so funny how I've caught myself right before it's come out wanting to say something like, oh, let's say, you know, there are some orthopedic surgeries where the recovery and rehab is longer than others. Uh, I don't want to say to that person, wow, it's going to be a tough six weeks. I have heard that this is like the worst rehab. Mm-hmm. It is, but we're just not going to talk about that, right? right now. Yeah, exactly. So, I, you know, well, that's... Uh, on a similar note to that, one of the things I've I learned from the book that you gave me, um, "Don't Sing Songs to a Heavy Heart," uh-huh. which I think is a really good treatment of this topic, um, is don't say that you've been there. That do, that doesn't do any good to say even, I, I I know what you're going through. Yeah, even if you have, right? You know, that's what I've got friends who have lost children who have lost uh, relatives to suicide, and they know people who've done the same, but they'll say our experiences were completely different. Right. Um, And that's one that the heart behind it isn't bad. No. You're trying to empathize, but it's just in those moments that never comes across the way you mean it to come across. It always minimizes their pain or their situation. It trivializes it to an extent. Yeah. 
as a rule of thumb, just never say, yeah, I know exactly what you're going through. And you know, you know how that works out to be good is when, let's say, for example, somebody's just lost a child and the person that walks in their door is somebody they know has lost a child. Mm-hmm. And the person who is suffering the loss right now, they say to that person, yeah. I know you understand me. Please come over here. That's okay. Right, right. But that person that's coming in the door, their role really is not to say, I understand what you're going through. It's more just to say, I know you are hurting beyond measure. And mm-hmm. I just want to let you know I'm here and I love you. You know, yeah. and that's because that's true. They are right. hurting and you're there. You know, just yeah. to speak what you know to be true is important. Well, I think one of the takeaways that I've I've watched in your ministry in, in, in seeing this a little bit is you just never know what God's going to use. And if you're mm-hmm. present and if you're mm-hmm. praying and if you're caring, you know, that's, that's what you're called to do and to be. And I'll never forget, this is kind of a funny moment, but it, it illustrates that point. When I was on a call one time, we get this call and, uh, this person's looking for a pastor to, to pray with them. So I, I'm, I'm actually at a concert, um, which I don't think you're supposed to do when you're on a call. But anyway, so it's a Christian concert. So I, yeah, I yeah. step outside and it's right by these train tracks. It's like right when I get this lady on the phone, this train goes by. So we're waiting for like four or five minutes while this train is going. So I'm already off to a horrible start. Well, when we start talking, it's pretty obvious this person has no idea what's going on or who I am or something like that. And, uh, but, but tells me that in, in recovery, that things are going really well, they're feeling really good and they've got a lot of really good medicine. And I'll never forget talking to this person. And as they're, as they're talking, they just stop in mid sentence. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden they go, uh, you know what? I think I just fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the medication's working. Well, you know what? I'm just going to let you rest. <laughs> you know, you know what's funny about that too. That's in my experience is, yeah, whenever we visit someone that maybe just had their surgery or they're within the first 24 hours, they're usually on. Some people are on some pretty serious medication. And I, when I go back in the next day, I say to them, "I was here yesterday because." And often they'll say, really, you were? And I just try to remind them because they don't they don't remember that I came that day of. And I want them to make sure they know that, hey, I was here yesterday. And yeah. if I now here's the other thing. If you feel the situation out and you know you can use humor, that's mm-hmm. okay too. You know, if it's a good friend of mine or somebody that I know knows me mm-hmm. and they're through the surgery, things are going great. I might say, yeah, I was here yesterday. I can't believe some of the things you told me. I had no idea. <laughs> but but again, that is something to use a lot of wisdom on. Right. Humor is good only if in the context of the situation, they actually like that. They want that. But, but you know, one of the things I, I was reading in a commentary, you know, the, you know this verse in 2 Corinthians uh, 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who comforts us in all our affliction, that we may comfort others, parakaleo, to walk alongside. Well, the commentary I was reading said that when the when the Latin, who are the Latin folks called? The Latin people, you know mm-hmm. the word, the people who spoke Latin. Were they Romans? The Romans. Thank you. When the Latin people <laughs> translated this into the Vulgate, into the Latin translation, uh-huh. they used a word meaning to instill strength, hmm. which I think is where we get the word encourage to instill yeah. courage. 
So what does that mean? The God who comforts us, comfort does not mean, if we are to take it that way, does not mean to make you feel better, Mm. but it is to strengthen your soul so that you can move through this. And so part of the role of a caring pastor is soul strengthening. It's not, like when I say there are times for laughter, it's not ever with the intent of making them feel better, in a sense. When I visit someone, I'm not there to make them feel better. I'm there to show what Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How is he with us always? In several different ways. One of the ways is through his saints, through his followers. And in that sense, that instills a courage in their soul. And does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It strengthens them. And again, I don't know if the Latins or the Romans, whatever you call them, were, <laughs> if, if they were onto something, but it's interesting that they use that word to translate parakaleo, mm-hmm. that it's not a word meaning cheer you up. Right. Or even make the situation better. Yeah. It's not, not at all. The situation we have no control of, but in that situation, it's the idea of you're going to get through this and I'm here to help you. Mm-hmm. You may not get over this, but you're going to get through it. So let's switch gears here. And uh, I wanted to talk to you about writing. So one of the, we talked a lot about pastoring, a lot about the Bible, you know, all kinds of things on this podcast, a lot of reading, but mm-hmm. we haven't talked at all about writing. And I, I just happen to know that you are a good writer, a diligent writer, but somebody who's really studied the craft of writing. So walk us through a little bit in your life, what does writing look like? Well, it's funny you say I'm a, I'm a writer and it's like I have published nothing, but uh, yeah. <laughs> I've got several books I've started on and uh, that, those kind of things. Um, I, I have been writing for years. I was a journalism major in college. Uh, I can't do math to save my life. In fact, I think Satan was involved when letters got into the math thing. But um, but I, I, writing is almost a therapeutic thing for me. Mm-hmm. I love to write, but I like to read, you know, I like to read people that have written books on writing. There's one by a man named Zinser, the, is that, what is it called? On writing or the art of writing. Yeah. And he's actually related to the people that do the wall, make the wallpaper products. Zinser, I don't know if you knew that, but I don't I even know, know if you're familiar with that, but that's just, you know, you that's people in the listening audience, yeah. audience don't need to tip me for that. Um, Stephen King wrote a book called On Writing, and if you can get past a lot of his foul language, Stephen King is a very good teacher on how to write. Mm-hmm. Use short words. Don't use ad. Or use hard, adverbs hardly at all. Mm-hmm. Don't use short sentences. There are time to use long sentences, but um, but I love reading those kind of people. But a lot of what I do is just therapeutic. I do it. It's not. And people tell me this. I mean, people I know that write anyway will say this. You know, you don't write so that you can publish a book and get people to buy it, although that may happen. You write just for the sheer joy mm-hmm. of writing. Um, but I think for most people, writing is not a joy. You no. Know, it's a, it, it, whether it's kind of staring at that blank page and feeling the yeah. weight of that or whether it's you know, writer's block, which maybe we'll have time to talk about this. I, I, there's a lot of stuff coming out right now that writer's block isn't a real thing. Um, but, but regardless of what it is, there are a lot of barriers to entry to writing. I think there probably are a good number of people who just enjoy writing no matter what. But mm-hmm. what I've come to find out is that most people enjoy having written more than they enjoy writing. Yeah. And so talk us through how do you get yourself to write? I mean, is it just pure joy for you or you have a routine or something that you do? Well, you know, I may be different too. My favorite part of writing is actually the editing 
it's if I can get started and if I can start a document. And one of the things I know you're familiar with is that in our office, every Thursday, I inherited this tradition that you bring a dozen or two dozen donuts to the staff and we call it Donut Thursday. And we would often send out an email notifying them. And somewhere within the first few months of me being there, I just thought I'm going to be funny Uh and I'm going to send out a funny email because something I heard on the radio on the way in or something. Well, then it was like, let's just make this a deal every week. And then mm-hmm. I hear from the staff. That, it was one of my favorite things about working at Crossing. It's, it's, it's the deal a, Thursday emails. It's a fun thing, but it's, it's people now will tell me, they're like, we didn't, we never come up and get the donuts, but we, we really can't wait to read that email. Mm-hmm. That's satisfying because they're often humorous. They often have to do with inside humor that we you know. It might be something someone said at the staff meeting this week and I'll play off of that. Um, but my favorite part of that is when I can get in there and write that and then I can start editing it. And I've got a thing called Synonym Finder, which is a thesaurus about two inches thick. I think you've seen it because mm-hmm. the, 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 one of the keys to really clever writing, I think, is using short words, but words that you're not expecting mm. or uh, there are words that you know what they are. But they, I, I love the way good writers can can frame a sentence and it'll say the same thing somebody else can say, but they, they use creative words, not long words, not mm-hmm. smart words, but just just little short little words. Yeah, little bursts. And, and and the correct use of punctuation, the correct use of all caps, which I get a lot of that Donut Thursday. I play off of what Dave, I used to read Dave Barry books. He's not a believer, but he's he's a great writer of humor. And he and Ted Nancy should have been roommates in college. <laughs> and Ted Nancy too. There's But going back and editing and changing a word, or in the Donut Thursday emails, I usually have footnotes. And the footnotes sometimes are people's favorite part of the email. Mm -hmm. But those come... Like to, it's it's really hard to describe. My mind's kind of demented in that. I tell people <laughs> that the ones that people like the most are the ones I thought of between the donut shop and the office. Uh-huh. And I don't. Part of it's just the way I think. But yeah, I, I you know I keep thinking Cole that I want to write a book someday, and I can't figure out if I want it to be like a. Christian theology book, and if so, I mean that in a light sense. I'm not mm-hmm. the great scholarly type. Or if I want it to be a novel type thing that mm-hmm. is serious and funny, or if I just want to write something just totally hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know that the. I guess for me, I don't. I really don't have as much to say maybe as I thought I did on this. For me, it's the satisfaction of somebody saying, "Man, that really." Um, in the case of Donut Thursday, that cracked me up. That uh-huh. gives me a sense of satisfaction. I've done something that has created something in someone mm-hmm. to make them smile more or right. something like that. But but there's a part of me, too, that wants to really write a theology book and clarify where I think maybe people are misunderstanding things. Mm-hmm. But there's tons of those out there, so maybe right. that won't ever happen. Well, writing is a craft. You know, it's, it's, it's something that I, on the outside I think you think, well, there's good writers and there's bad writers, and I'm you yeah. know a bad writer or something, but... But writing is a skill. Of course, there's people that are, you know, just disposed with a little bit more skill than others. But, you know, I think anybody, if they're going to spend the time to do it, will reap some benefits from it. I think maybe the two benefits that I've seen would be people that are journalers that will take the time and the consistency to journal, which I'll admit is not something I'm good at. It's not something I do. But for the people that do it, there is a ton of benefit in consistently writing 
your prayers, your thoughts, yeah. your dialogue with God. Um, but then, but then on the other hand, some something about writing helps you to tease out and craft ideas yeah. in a way that you didn't before. It's almost a process that you put your thinking through. And in, you're having a conversation with yourself when you're writing, whether it's the writing mm-hmm. part or the editing part, that you go through this transformation as you write, yeah. and it does things to you when you come out the other end. It's almost like, and I've never sculpted anything, but I think of it as kind of like sculpting. You're looking at a block or a piece of clay, and a sculptor kind of knows what they want. So they, but so how do you do it? You just start. Mm-hmm. And in writing, it's just you just start. That's why I think I say I think editing is my favorite part, because editing is almost like when you get to the sculpture and you're fine-tuning all the little details. Right. And that's where usually, like if it's a humorous, <coughs> a humorous email... When I start chuckling, I know that I'm on to something, uh-huh. you know, and then it's like, oh, here's a good part. Oh, and then I play off of that. But the only way I can do that is I've got to start just typing it out. Yeah. I've got to start going. Well, to get back to the sculpting metaphor, you, you have to have a raw material to work with from yeah. to get to the editing part. I, I feel about writing that way. It's like when you don't want to write something, um, even when you have a deadline, the most important thing you can do is just get something out there to work with. Yeah. And just get a couple hundred words. They don't have to be good. They just have to exist. And then you can make them good. Yeah. You can edit them. But but that first step is just give me some raw material to work with. Yeah. And you that know, first step is it's it may be decent at best. Yeah. But that's all it is. And I think most writers would agree that and I'm again, I'm not a person people would consider a writer, but I do. A lot of people just don't read it. But or they don't ever see it because it's just, for me, it's therapeutic. But yeah, you get to that editing part. It's just joyous. And then you mm-hmm. think about what what kind, how is this going to impact somebody? And I don't mean impact in the sense of this is going to change their lives. Mm-hmm. For me, it might just be it makes them smile or makes them laugh. I, I'm so satisfied on the Donut Thursday emails. It's so neat to hear from people sometime just to say, man, I've been having a bad week. And this just made my day. Great. You know, that's... That's, but maybe what somebody doesn't see about what an author does is, and hopefully this is, I I hope this is true of most writers. A good writer is like Tiger Woods. They make it look easy, but Mm -hmm. they've put a lot of thought into it and they've really refined it down. But what's hard, you know, what's hard about being an editor. I edit things after they've already gone out. I'm like, oh man, I should have used this word. Now that I found that, you've just got to come to a point where you stop. The word effect Uh, can have an A on it. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, in case y'all didn't know, Cole and I have a debate over affect and effect, but uh, we'll have a throwdown that y'all won't witness later. You know who I've learned a lot about writing from, and somebody I really admire is Eugene Peterson. Oh yeah, and I really wish that he would have written a book on writing. I don't know, I know that he did. He's got little sections about his process and he's got you know a, a paragraph here and there about the craft of writing or he writes a lot about words and I've always loved that about him but he's yeah. somebody that really inspired me when it comes to writing in I, I know this so gonna, many other ways. This but. is going to sound crazy but Eugene Peterson I almost feel like I'm eating his words. They're just tasty. It's mm-hmm. the way he crafted words when he wrote it just almost was like a dinner. And you, you, I don't know how to explain this. I may sound crazy here, but it's like you can taste his words. Mm-hmm. He was just so good about that. He was. Wow. And it's, just, it's rich. Like there's, yeah. It's almost like in 3D, whereas most of what you read is 2D. Yeah. And I, I just, we, we've talked about him before on this 
podcast, I'm sure we will again, just about his pastoral influence, but part of it is just the craft of what he was doing. It's like, you know, there, there's a difference between buying, you know, disposable things and the whole like buy once, buy for life, like buy quality, yeah. handmade. You know, I feel like a lot of Christian writing, and I would put a lot of my Christian writing in this category, is kind of disposable. I mean, blog yeah. posts, there's a hundred billion of them a day, you know, yeah. that come out and and sometimes you find a good idea, sometimes you don't. But what I felt like I got when I read Peterson was this handcrafted, somebody that had had a trade, yeah. that had made a product that was unique and was valuable, and that you didn't you, that you didn't throw away quickly. Reading his books is like that, and he, and he's a guy too. And a lot of good authors do this. He will take an idea that you've known all your life. And he'll help you think about it from a whole different angle, not mm-hmm. a heretical angle or an, a false angle. It's just like, gosh, I've never thought about that truth mm-hmm. that I've always believed and he's always believed. I've never thought about it like that. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things too, Cole, that I've, I've written one and I wonder if this is what I would like to do. I would like to write hymns. Mm. Uh, I, You know, one of the reasons uh, I, I think uh, I had a seminary professor, he said, buy a hymnal and memorize it. And we, whenever we're at a flea market or something like that that has a lot of old books, I'll look for hymnals. Because one of the things I like about a hymnal is you get to see the writings of people that didn't have a publisher. They didn't have a record company. No one was telling them they needed to produce this song. Mm-hmm. It just poured forth from going deep with God. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things, you know, as I think about if I'm ever published, and maybe, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but... That's one of my aspirations. Could I ever have a hymn? And you know what's neat, and you and I both know this, there are people composing hymns today even, and they are there are some rich, mm-hmm. rich hymns yeah. that are being written in the last five years oh, by yeah. people who are really going deep with God. And those do, those do a couple things. One is they help you to think clearly about God, and, and the other is they just... They inspire you to go deeper. And I, I, I often tell people this. I said, I judge the quality of a worship song. The music needs to go with a song or it's not a song. But I judge a song by if I'm just reading it on paper mm-hmm. and there's nothing in the background but maybe white noise or traffic. What does that do to me when I just read the words and yeah. I've got no tune yet? And uh, I would love, it, it, you know, one of, I don't know if this is a goal, but it'd be great if, if I die and people were to say, Lance wrote hymns that made us think. Mm-hmm. He wrote hymns that helped us and spurred us to go deeper with God. Yeah. That would be something. Those, would those be are something. hard to write. Now, Eugene Peterson, did he write hymns? Because he should have. You know, he wrote poems. So yeah. in Contemplative Pastor and especially that book, Five Smooth Stones, I think he has that poem in between each chapter. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, a lot like kind of Wendell Berry type poetry. Um, but yeah, he his legacy will be as obviously all the things that he said are impactful. The way that he said them mm-hmm. was really impactful. You know, the yeah. same thing is true with Piper to an extent. Yeah. So Piper has written a lot of poetry. And uh, obviously he he crafts the things he says. He's writing a different genre almost than Peterson is, but you can tell he has just been meticulously pouring over every single word yeah, that's in a, the manuscript. I, that with Piper and Peterson, 
I think even Tommy Nelson at Denton Bible does a little bit of this too. I think he talks about, I think that's one way you can walk with God mm-hmm. is you get into his word, you pray, and then you write poetry that honors and glorifies him. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, that I, I just wonder what that does for the soul. Even writing hymns is the same way. You know, one of the greatest hymn writers of all time is William Cooper. I know it's spelled Cowper, but I heard it's pronounced Cooper. That guy had severe depression. Mm-hmm. He was he was in awful shape. Right. But even out of his sorrow, mm-hmm. even out of what I think it caused him to do was just be real contemplative and go deep and think about things at a different level than most of us can. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about poetry and hymns is you can take a person that's in darkness or a person that's in great light and they can write really, really good stuff. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately for a lot of us, what that would mean is you're going to... You're in the you're in a dark trial, right? And what comes out of that is rich poetry. Yeah. That, so if you're going to recommend one resource or or uh, just an aid to help people get into writing, what would it be? Oh man, I well, you know, again, I think what inspires me is to read read those two books on writing, Zinser and Stephen King. And again, with Stephen King, he's his language is not good through a lot of it, but get past that and just mm-hmm. read what he's saying. But the other thing, too, and you know this too, Cole, I think where, where I get inspired to start writing again is I read someone that's really good. Uh-huh. Whether it's humorous like P.G. Woodhouse, he and C.S. Lewis do a marvelous job with similes. Oh, they, yeah. they, similes and metaphors, they are masters of that. And that motivates me. It's like, i got to get back into this. But read really good authors. Mm-hmm. And from different areas, you got Dickens, you got Lewis, you got Woodhouse, you've got... Uh, like I said, you might have Dave Barry or Ted Nancy. Mm-hmm. Read them, read, and just watch, and then just ask yourself, why do I like this so much? What is it? And almost, I don't know. You study it, but I just get motivated by reading. That's yeah. that's what usually motivates me to write. And I've noticed that whatever I'm reading impacts at the time what I'm writing. Absolutely, if that makes sense. <clears throat> Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.